This week, I chat to journalist, blogger and author Iona Bain. We talk about how she launched the Young Money blog, financial education and how important it is to get out and talk directly to your customers. Welcome to episode 120 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business and for discussing topics on all things finance. And now here's your host, Roger Edwards. Hey folks, and welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Thanks as always for tuning in. Whether you're listening to this on a train, boat, plane, tram, or in the car, I really appreciate you taking the time to plug me and my guests into your earphones. Let's get straight into this week's interview with Iona Bain. I really enjoyed talking to Iona and hearing her story about how she set up the Young Money blog. We chat about how Iona set up the first blog dedicated to young people and their money, why we need more financial education in schools and what it should cover, giving young people the power and the freedom to take back control of their money, the importance of getting out and meeting people to find out their problems, and why conforming to the norm is not a strategy for business success. Iona is a journalist, blogger and author. She's written for all the major national newspaper titles and financial services trade publications. She founded the award-winning Young Money blog, the first and only online financial blog devoted to young people in the UK. It won Money Blogger of the Year at the 2016 Santander Media Awards. Iona is also author of Spare Change, named one of the top five feminist books of 2016. And you'll see Iona appear regularly on BBC Breakfast and BBC Scotland. So let's get straight into that interview with Iona right here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Iona Bain, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Thanks. And where are we Skyping each other from today? Of course, I'm in Edinburgh, as always. Um, I'm uh, based in West London, um, but I do try and make it up to Edinburgh whenever I can, because that's where I'm from originally. Really? I didn't know that. That's fascinating. I was actually down in London yesterday, so we may well have passed each other on the way. (laughs) Indeed. Ships in the night. It's great to have you on the show, Iona. And today we're going to talk about the Young Money blog, which is a website that you've set up. And I'm looking at it now on my screen, and it really does cover a lot of ground, you know, not just money, it's all about relationships, consumer consumer affairs, teenagers, student finance, everything. But before we get into that, Iona, tell the people who are listening to the podcast a little bit about yourself, where you come from, where you're going, what makes you tick? Well, um, I have a somewhat unconventional background for a financial blogger and journalist and author. I actually trained as a musician when I grew up in Edinburgh. Um, I went to a specialist music school called the City of Edinburgh Music School, Mm -hmm. um, which um, was a really fabulous school in in the sense that it provided um, free music tuition, but within a state school. So um, while I had quite a normal state school education, I also had this brilliant opportunity to learn two instruments to a very, very high standard. So by the time I was 16, I was... Um, grade eight on piano and cello, um, actually aspiring to be a concert pianist. Right. And uh, so I flirted with that for quite a while. And um, then I went on to study music at university. And after that, uh, tried to make a living as a musician and music journalist. 
but that's very difficult, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And in the years after leaving university, this wasn't that long after the financial crash. It was a very challenging environment for graduates. And I was uh, trying to make my way in a field where you can be extremely good. You can be a very, very talented and hardworking musician and and not get very far mm -hmm. because that's just the nature of the music industry. Right. Um, and the same actually goes for music journalism. And I loved it whilst it lasted, but it didn't last that long. Um, and at that time, I was becoming quite obsessed with money. Now, looking back, I realized that it was becoming a real fixation in my life because I wasn't earning very much money. I wasn't independent because I was living at home with my parents. Right. And I felt very insecure about the whole subject. I felt that my self-esteem was really tied up with what I earned and, and, and how I used my money. Um, and I think that that, along with the fact that, that my musical career was slowing down, that's what really uh, inspired my dad and my mum to say to me, well, look, why don't you consider a different direction? Why don't you consider financial journalism? You know, you're a good writer. You've got a, a, a way with words. Why not put that into financial journalism? And I mean, they had a reason for saying this because my dad was a um, very respected personal finance journalist for over 30 years before he retired last year. Okay. So he'd seen it from that side and he realized just what a huge difference he'd made as a journalist in people's lives. People would write to him saying, I've been screwed over by this bank or this insurer or this lawyer, you know, can you help me? And I'd seen as well just how much he had been able to help ordinary readers and how much he was providing information and help and solidarity as a financial journalist. So I saw that. But at the same time, when they suggested this to me, I thought, well, I'm terrible with numbers. <laughs> I've never given any thoughts of the whole subject of money, really, apart from, you know, a very cursory look at my budget and making sure that I wasn't spending too much. And actually, I, I was very frugal growing up and I have kept that frugality now. It's, it's amazing how those early experiences really shape your relationship with money. But that didn't mean that I'd thought about it in any great depth. So I was a bit resistant to the idea for a while. But actually, once you realize that you've got to adapt and evolve, and once you understand, actually, this is a challenge and this is a new direction, but I can rise to that challenge. You know, I've had a I had a very character forming education. I went to quite a rough state school and had to really get to a high standard on two musical instruments, had a lot of assessments and recitals to do. I was used to pressure. I was used to having to step up to the plate. So I thought, okay, why not give it a go? So I started the blog because my mum said, there's no blog out there about young people and money, which I thought was amazing. I mean, this was 2011 mm -hmm. um, and blogging wasn't, wasn't brand new. It, it was around, but maybe it just wasn't as hugely established and well-known as it is today. And there wasn't really any blog that was dedicated to young people and money in the UK. There wasn't. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll set one up. It was really for my benefit at first, but then it grew from there. And I just, I just loved having the freedom to write about subjects that I felt strongly about. And it turned out other young people felt strongly about them too. And, and when you drill down to it, young people are really quite obsessed with money. It's mm -hmm. just that they don't know how to take control of it and make it work for them. That's so right. that's, that's how it all kind of evolved, really. That's right. I mean, it's interesting because I mean, I've, been, I've worked in and out of the financial services industry for about the last 25 years. And one of the things that always annoys me and has become a bit of an obsession with me all, all through my career is how complicated it can be. Mm. You know, big companies make it complicated with the language they use, with the 
with the legal jargon they use in contracts, this, that, and the other. And that confuses not just young people, but, but um, you know, anybody. The other thing as well, and I was just talking to my son about this the other day. My son's um, 17 and a half. He's doing his um, advanced hires. He's wanting to go to university. Yeah. And he was talking about, you know, I might have to get a student loan. What if I have to pay for accommodation? And again, the penny dropped that, you know, young people don't learn about finance at school. And mm. it's nuts, isn't it? They, they, they learn about all sorts of different subjects, mathematics, English, whatever it might be, you know, design. Mm. But the basics of how to run a finance, the finances for a family, nobody teaches them how to do this. Mm-mm. There's several aspects of that that I find immensely frustrating. Firstly, what you have identified, which is that it's left to chance a lot of the time with regards to young people and, and, and the depth and the quality of the financial education they receive. So mm-hmm. although we have in recent years started to have financial education officially on the curriculum, mm-hmm. I think that in practice, from what I've seen covering the subject, it can vary in quality and depth mm-hmm. tremendously. And and I mean, you know, for, for being in Scotland, that there's been financial education on the curriculum up there for longer than mm-hmm. in England. Um, but again, it's, it's pretty vague because really it's just a specification to have something about money in the curriculum, but there are no... There's no guidance or, or, or real standards in place that, that can really tell schools how they should teach the subject. And a lot of the time what they're doing is they're outsourcing it to banks. Mm. Um, I heard a really shocking story the other day, actually, from um, uh, a chap I know in the financial sector. He said to me that his daughter came home from school and she had been um, taught uh, financial education that day by uh, a building society. I, I won't say what the name of this building society is, but they said to the kids, look, payday loans are dreadful. Never take out payday loans. And she'd really absorbed this lesson was saying to her dad, you know, they're, they're the worst possible kind of loan you can get. Um, and dad said to her, okay, so what did they tell you to do instead if you need to borrow money? Well, get a credit card from this building society. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I didn't think it was as blatant as that, but clearly that is what is going on. And, and it is because we don't have necessarily the resources. And, and a lot of charities are trying to do really good work in this area. My bank um, is, is one that springs to mind immediately. They do fantastic work in schools, but there's just not enough work like that going on that can really make sure that financial education is comprehensive, independent and high quality. So the website you set up, Young Money Blog, was was the original intention to sort of fill that educational gap? Yes, it was. And um, this was 2011. And at that time, um, Martin Lewis was really starting to take off with uh, Money Saving Expert. Yeah. And that was a bit of a game changer, I think, in terms of the resources available online for people to educate themselves about money. Um, and I think that other websites have had to um, look at that and, and realize, right, where do I stand in relation to this? How, how can I be helpful? I can't com- compete with that. It's such a massive website. It's got huge resources behind it. Um, whereas I'm me writing the blog more or less on my own. I get help from various members of the Bain family, it has to be said. Um, <laughs> but also I do get um, guest writers in on occasion as well. And I'd like to do more of that in future. But essentially, it is me. It's mm-hmm. my brainchild. Um, so I can't compete with bigger websites that, uh, and even with the money advice service, you know, and their website and, and the fact that that is 
you know, theoretically meant to be educating the public online about their money. So I've changed from it. It's changed from being just uh, not just an information resource. In the beginning, I did express my views and I did try to make it down to earth. And I did try to really set out the, the problems facing young people. But I did also put a massive emphasis on providing information. And I still do that. But it has moved more in a direction that's trying to reflect what young people are thinking and feeling about money. And I think that's a that's a shift because actually a lot of the time young people, they don't necessarily want to be lectured. They don't want to be told what to do. And it's complicated. I can't give advice. I'm not a financial advisor. No. So my job as a journalist, I, I see myself actually more as a journalist than a blogger because I think that implies a standard mm-hmm. and a, a quality of writing and, and proofreading and fact-checking and authenticity, which have all really come to the fore lately because of the whole fake news scandal. I think when you're a journalist, your job is not necessarily to tell people what to do. It's to reflect what's going on, reflect what they're thinking and feeling about money and reflect some of the things that they can do to help themselves and put across alternative points of view that they maybe hadn't considered before. And what are young people thinking about money, Iona? What goes through their minds when they're thinking about all sorts of things from student loans to, you know, when when am I going to get paid? I think that petrified is probably the word that sums up <laughs> sums up um our attitude with money um it's so difficult to confront a subject like money because it means having to confront all sorts of different things that are going on in your life your relationships your career your living situation and i think that it just invites so many questions about why you're doing things the way you're doing things mm-hmm. and how you're spending money that for lots of people, it's it's just too scary to consider that. And that's really the uphill battle that I've been having since I set up the blog, because I'm well aware that people are probably going to find it a lot more appealing to go online, young people mm-hmm. especially, and, and read, you know, beauty blogs and yeah. fashion blogs. It's escapism, it's fantasy, it's aspirational, it's fun. It's telling them the things that they can have, rather than a lot of the time financial blogs there's maybe a perception that they're telling people the things that they can't have. Mm -hmm. It's about depriving yourself. Whereas how I see my work, I see it as giving young people power and freedom to take, take back the control of their money and, and to decide much more thoughtfully what they're spending their money on and how they want that to reflect their values and principles. Mm. And I think that that's a message that is universal that all young people can think about. And I do think, young people do get to a stage maybe in their late 20s and early 30s where they start realizing that they start realizing that all the commercial pressures that they faced all throughout their young lives that they can be quite destructive actually for their Mm -hmm. personal finances as well as for their mental health and and relationships and um, I think a lot of sensible mature young people do get to a point where they go actually taking control of my finances it's an act of self-care it's an act of looking after myself and looking out for myself and making sure that if if I do live past tomorrow which looks increasingly likely as I get into my early 30s I no longer think I'm invincible yeah you know I am actually going to age and if I am going to age I need to have some resources for the future um I, I just hope that young people realize that soon enough so that they can actually start to make a difference and undo maybe some of the damaging behaviors that can occur earlier on in their life such as you know taking out a huge amount of debt 
I know so many young people who regret deeply the amount of debt that they took out in their late teens and early 20s. That's mm. so young. Um, and they're still paying for it in their late 20s and even in their early 30s. There are so many things that we almost grow up expecting to happen, aren't they? It's, it's mm. almost as if, you know, you you leave school and you should go to university. And if you go to university, you've got to saddle yourself with a load of debt. If you if you go to an English university, Scotland is a little bit uh, easier on the pocket, but not so much. And then you've got to buy a house and therefore you've got to get yourself a mortgage and you've got to try and save money and you've got to put money into a pension. All of these, these things are just thrown at us quite a lot of the time from older people like me yeah. wearing grey suits in big financial <laughs> institutions. And... I, I don't know. Again, it's a different way of communicating with a different generation. And I think what you've tried to do with your website is to communicate people with people on their level and to mm. try to use things that interest them mm. to get them thinking about these issues rather than it just being thrown at them by nameless, faceless suits in big companies. Absolutely. I, I, I do agree with that. Although I don't necessarily think that you're part of the problem because you are at least admitting that that is that that is possibly the case with with so many parts of the financial sector but i never start with the products really no um i i mean i i i you could probably go on the website now and say actually you've done a blog about the lifetime isa this week well yes i have because i do think that there needs to be a balance and i have tried on the blog to to strike a balance between the more um detailed articles about products and i mean the lifetime isa is just such a huge development in young people's finances it would be remiss for me not to have at least a few blogs that directly deal with that. And so mm -hmm. that people, if they do go on there and think, well, I want to read about that. I want to know what the information is, what, what you know, what the score is with the lifetime ice that they can do. Um, but generally, I don't start with the products. And you are absolutely right when you say that you get into your 20s and you're suddenly met with all these conflicting priorities and, and, and instructions, sometimes issued by the older generation. Um, and because you've not necessarily had very detailed, in-depth financial education, you feel confused. You don't know whether or not to opt into that workplace pension and whether the benefits are really going to be worth it. Um, and you don't know whether or not you need to take out the lifetime ISA. Um, and you don't know whether you should save for a house, actually, because, you know, you're a bit uncertain about the area that you live in. Are you going to stay there for very long? Can you commit to a mortgage? You know, do you really want to, you know, be incredibly in debt to a mortgage provider for you know 10 15 years i can understand why young people feel very daunted and confused about that that whole landscape um so it's good in a way that it comes across the website comes across like it is not necessarily saying to young people do this do that do the other because it's complicated and because circumstances vary so much and how did you go about coming up with the structure for the website and the topics? Did you get a load of young people together and do a, a brainstorming session or did you just get out there and, and talk to people? Yeah, the, the latter. As a, uh, as a self-employed journalist, one of the best things about that is being able to get out and talk to people. Mm. Um, I've worked at newspapers and um, one of the most frustrating parts about that is you would think that the only way that you could get stories these days is to talk to people. And that is true. But a lot of the time, journalists don't get out of the office no. and they don't talk to people and they wait for the stories to come to them. Whereas I try to get out there and talk to people of all ages and find out what their story is. And if you talk to somebody for more than a few minutes, you know, 
nine times out of 10, they have something there that you can write about or that will, you know, you can put into your pipe and, and smoke because it, it, it will, you know, it, you can't come up with all the ideas and all the, the inspiration on your own. You have to get out there and talk to people. So yeah, I mean, I, I did talk to lots of young people when I was starting the blog and I still do. But for the most part, I try to just absorb as much of what I see around me. Um, I read a great deal of current affairs and news. I try to keep up with that as much as possible. And I try to keep in touch with the zeitgeist and try and reflect what's going on out there that, that young people are really thinking about. I find this whole thing fascinating. When, when I was working for big corporate, and I always call it big corporate rather than naming the actual company, although most people who listen to the podcast know who it was that I worked for. Right. Big corporate. I always try to make a big effort to get out like you have done to talk mm -hmm. to the customer, mm -hmm. to talk to the financial advisors because the company I worked for was intermediated. But I would always be out there talking to the general public as well. And it never ceases to amaze me that we live in a world now where communication is easier than it has ever been. You know, we can communicate via Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram stories, whatever you want. And yet, a lot of the time, companies aren't doing what you've done and going out and talking directly to the people that they're dealing with. And I find this absolutely staggering that mm. we live in this age where we can communicate so well and we don't. And, you know, you mentioned before that a lot of journalists don't get out anymore. And, mm. and maybe that's the thing. They've, everybody's gone online. Everybody's got quicker deadlines. And, and, and the editors don't want the journalists going out because they want them sat in front of the keyboards typing away. When I mm. started in the industry, you know, it was easy to go out and have a coffee with a journalist or, or, or go out and have a beer with a journalist because they actually wanted to meet you face to face. Today, it's not as if they, I don't think they, it's not that they don't want to, it's just that they haven't got the time because they're forced to be in front of their screens all the time. And I do think that, you know, managing directors in big companies and, and journalists and, and financial advisors need to get out and talk to people outside of their environment. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. I just wonder where on earth you get the information from that will greatly benefit your business whatever it might be whether you are a financial advisor or in my case I'm a journalist I'm a blogger ideas are my meat and drink I need them to make a living mm. you know and the ideas actually they are they they matter more than anything if I've got a good idea then I find that the story writes itself mm -hmm. but having the space to come up with those ideas it's not easy and we're living in, in this relentlessly busy, frenetic, frantic culture now where there's this massive premium on getting into the office first thing in the morning and not leaving until, you know, you've proven to the boss that you, you, you've worked harder than everybody else. Yeah. You know, that coat on the back of the seat culture. I've never understood it as, as long as I've been in the workplace. I cannot get my head around why that's beneficial to the employee or the organization. And as a blogger and as a freelance journalist, I just keep coming back to my model, which is that sometimes you need to get out, have some space, have some thinking time. And that's when you come up with your best ideas. And of course, to be able to talk to people. So I'm, I'm positively evangelical about the remote working revolution. It was supposed mm. to have taken off after the, the 2012 Olympics in London. And even now, as, as a person living in London, whenever there's a tube strike and offices and companies insist on their employees coming in, you know, sometimes you have to be there to do the job. But I think a, 
a lot of the time you really don't have to be there and it's more about the boss being able to see you there in the seat and having an element of control over you and I just think it's I think it's bonkers personally and so as a as a journalist and the mindset of the journalist you must have a notebook or uh, uh, something on your phone mm. any ideas that you see it could be you see a billboard post or you could see somebody talking at a bus stop or you could yeah. overhear a conversation on a train you'll be scribbling down notes and those can become blogs Absolutely. I, I, I mean, if you were to have a look at my room, which is my office, and see the number of notebooks I have, it's insane. And I never throw them away. And sometimes I go back and read old notebooks. And even actually this week, I'm thinking about doing a, a blog all about critical thinking and how we encourage young people to be more critical mm. and be uh, more intelligent in their thinking. Because right now we're talking about the fake news scandal and how that's corrupting uh, people on social media, how people are not getting accurate information about what's going on in the world. And I really want to do a blog. And it's based on a book that I read a few years ago about how to train your brain. And I took lots of notes about, you know, the, the, the thinking process behind making good decisions. And I thought well, that would make a brilliant blog. And I only came up with that idea by looking at my past notebooks and mm. acting on, you know, um, something that maybe wouldn't seem entirely relevant to a blog about young money but actually now when you think about young people and where they get their information from and the fact that you're competing with fake news with biased news with um very very sly advertising on social media that's encouraging young people to go out and buy all sorts of meaningless rubbish basically <laughs> um when you think about that actually to to write a blog about how to use your brain and how to make better decisions i think is a very apt blog to write. Yeah, and, and this is this comes back to another conversation I've had with my son recently as well, is I don't think there's enough balance out there. Um, no. you know, it's confirmation bias. If you have a belief, you can go out and you can find untold numbers of articles and videos that will back up your belief. Mm -hmm. And therefore you think, well, I'm right then. But what you really need to do is you need to go and find the opposing view and, and, and then make a decision yourself as to, whether the right view is the one you believe or the opposite view or whether there's something in between. And I think that one of the consequences of our digital world that we live in now is it's far too easy to be very one-sided in your thinking and to believe yes. everything that you you hear, mm -hmm. especially if that's what you believe. And I don't think mm -hmm. enough people, and I'm, I'm, I'm as guilty as everybody else, I know I am, mm -hmm. you sometimes don't go and look for the opposing view and try to find the balance. Mm. Well, I think... It's it's frightening, actually, what's happening at the moment with young people mm. and how they are I, how they are identifying themselves online and the groups that they stick to rigidly and the views that they stick to. And I mean, even 10 years ago, when social media was was not really uh, the force that it is today, um, it was really a vehicle for communicating with friends. And it's changed massively. And I think that changed around about the time in, in my eyes anyway it changed around about the time that we had the Scottish referendum mm. and uh, and it, it suddenly became a place where people had to wear all their political views on their sleeve they had to really be out there with their political views and stick to them in a very trenchant fashion um, and I started thinking this is not healthy because we're all in our 20s here we should be at this point in our life yes we should be idealistic but we should also be willing to keep an open mind um, and we should also accept that we are we are not the finished article. I mean, when I went to university, 
that was the first time where I really understood that life has to be a continual learning process. You don't finish your education when you leave university. It is down to you to keep educating yourself as you leave and as you go through life. Everybody has to do that. It's just no one really tells you that. You just have to reach that conclusion of your own accord. But what I think is that a lot of young people now, they go on social media, they see certain views, they're the, the views that they feel comfortable with, they're the ones that chime in with their peer group and their identity, and they go, okay, well, that's it. That's all I need to know. Yeah. And to some extent, ignorance is bliss. But I, I also wonder just how that is um, affecting our ability to be able to have civilized debate and, and be able to entertain other points of view. I agree. And again, it's another, I've, I've got lots of hobby horses this morning, Iona. But again, I, I really don't like it when people ring me up and say, I'm a social media expert or I'm a digital marketing expert because I'm the first to admit I'm learning new stuff every day. You know, I've been a marketing person for 25 years, but I do learn stuff every day. I never call myself an expert. I call myself a like a an, an ongoing student or something like that. And, and I think that it's a really good philosophy that you've got here that you've built into your website. And, and what sort of reaction have you had from your target audience? What are young people saying about your blog? Well, I think there's still... Um, surprise that a young person has chosen to do something like this, Mm -hmm. um, which is amazing to me because money is a universal subject. It affects everybody. Um, Whereas you could argue that there will be some people that will never be interested in uh, beauty products or fashion. And yet the popularity of those blogs and vlogs is enormous. Uh Whereas money is a subject that affects everybody. And yet people still think it's very uh, it's a novelty and it's mm. unusual to find a young person writing about it and thinking about it and being, as I am now, extremely worked up about trying to get young people thinking about money. Um, but I think that they they are starting to realise, it always happens actually, after a period where there's been a lot of economic volatility and take after 2008, I heard that at the FT, they really struggled to fill posts in, and internships there pre-2008. After that, the, the the rate of applications went through the roof because <laughs> people were suddenly wanting to know about their money. They were wanting to know about the economy. And then I think it all quietened down, really. I mean, that, that and I think that's one of the reasons why we have had the, the populist revolt in the last year with Brexit and the vote for Donald Trump. Part of it is frustration and anger that it's all been swept under the carpet after Mm. the financial crash in 2008. The banks really didn't pay for what happened. The people who were responsible for letting that happen didn't really get the punishment that lots of people thought they deserved. Um, And I think that we've had a delayed reaction to that. And part of that is also that now young people are talking to me much more about money and the economy and what on earth is going to happen now that Donald Trump's in power and expecting me to have the answers, and I obviously <laughs> don't. But part of the answer I, I give is that, well, now more than ever, whatever you think about what's going to happen to the economy here or in America or across the world, now you have to look after your finances and have your eye to business because there is no substitute for making sure that your money is working as hard as possible. And I'm talking more about investments on the blog now, knowing that for lots of young people, that's not an option because they're not even at first base with budgeting, mm. etc. But 
I've talked a lot about that over the past five years. And one thing I really hate doing is repeating myself and feeling like I'm just writing the same old stuff over and over again. You've got to move on and evolve. And this year and in the coming years with the blog, I intend to write about subjects that I feel my audience will take more and more interest in and will have more curiosity about. And one of those subjects is definitely investments, because I think in this low interest rate environment, you've got to make your money work hard. And it is hard. It is, it's not an easy subject to get your head around. But I just don't think you've got any choice in this current environment. And obviously, there's not that many young people thinking of financial services as a potential career. Um, I mean, again, it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, the, the, your typical caricature of a financial advisor is somebody in their late 40s to, to late 50s. Mm. There aren't that many younger financial advisors out there. There's There's been a few who've appeared on the podcast. Danny Matthews um, is a yep. case in point. He's recently mm-hmm. launched a digital mortgage um, company called Morgie, which is extremely interesting. But what, what, what do you think we need to do and what can you do through your website to try to make financial services potentially a more attractive career for young people? That's a very hard question. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I do think that, like you say, part of it is having younger role models who are out there talking about the subject. So um, whenever I'm asked to do appearances in the media, I, I do normally accept the opportunity because, uh, I mean, I've been on BBC Breakfast, which has got an enormous audience and you can be on there for less than five minutes and the reaction that you get is incredible. Um, and you really, you really can't fathom why, you know, that that will be the case before you accept that appearance. Mm-hmm. But um, so that's why I always relish the opportunity to appear in the media, because that is when you get the conversation on the table and get people thinking much more about this whole subject. And it's interesting you talk about advisors. Um, I used to work for a publication called Financial Advisor, mm-hmm. um, part of the FT, which was a brilliant training ground for me as a journalist, actually. Um and I used to talk to financial advisors all the time because we had a requirement then um, to ask a financial advisor for his opinion. What well, usually was his opinion rather than her opinion. But I did try to get in touch with more women and try to feature them much more because I wanted in the paper for there to be a diverse reflection of, of, of financial advisors. And I wanted to convey to female advisors and younger advisors that your opinion matters. You know, what, what you think about financial services matters and, and we should be reflecting much more your outlook on the world. Um, and it is difficult because they are still a minority. Women and young people maybe are not as attracted to uh, the financial profession as men are. Um, but if we don't reflect female and young views from that profession much more assiduously, then we're just going to continue to perpetuate that inequality and that lack of diversity. So, Iona, what would you say was the one big thing that you'd like the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast to take away from all the experiences you've had putting the Young Money blog together? Well, my main ethos is to plough my own furrow and do my own thing. And even if it leaves you feeling like a bit of an outsider, that's probably a good thing. Mm. And it doesn't come naturally to humans because we like to feel part of a group it makes us feel safe and comfortable but right from the start with the blog I've I've always felt like I've been doing something a bit different and I've always been reluctant to follow a mainstream consensus about how I should be running the blog Mm. so even now a lot of it is, is is very unconventional compared to 
the mainstream views on blogging. You've got to have lots of guest posts. You've got to monetize the heck out of it. <laughs> you've got to, you know, you've got to constantly push out content. It's all got to be ultra personalized. All the posts have got to be really quite, you know, pithy and short because people have got terrible attention spans and you've got to be on social media every waking moment of the day. You know, I think that a lot of these shibboleths are, are there because people don't necessarily have the time and space to think about them and go, well, actually, I'm, I'm not sure that that's right. And maybe there is another way to do things. Um, and if you just have the conviction to go, I'm going to trust my instinct and listen to other people, of course, and take advice and feedback where appropriate. But when push comes to shove, it's my life. It's my project. It's my baby. And I, I've got good instincts and good ideas. And I need to follow through with them because nobody else is going to say, necessarily going to say to you you know yes go for it you know you've got the right idea you've got the right path they'll say it to you once you've been successful and i found this with the blog you know you can you can toil away for quite a few years with it and not really get very much recognition and in the last year i've, I've written a book um i've been um I, I won an award in november for money blogger of the year and it just feels like a lot of the work that i've done has suddenly come good in terms of recognition but you can't really do it for that reason. And you can't start a blog and hope to get recognition from other people. You know, you've got to do it for the right reasons and, and have your own ideas about it. And then, you know, if it is a success, then people will give you credit. But that's not the reason why you do it. No, again, it's those experts I mentioned before who keep saying these things. You have to write a blog and it's got to be 300 words or it's got to be 1500 words, but nowhere mm -hmm. in between. Or you've got to be posting at least five articles a day and then you've got to blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And if you start conforming to the norm, like the mm -hmm. experts say, then eventually, you know, you will become just like everything else. And what you're trying to do here is to stand out and to be different. Mm -hmm. And that's in my mind, that is the way to be successful. Iona, it's been fabulous to talk to you this morning. I think we could probably go on chatting for a lot longer, but we'll probably need to wind things up. So what I also like to do on the podcast is just to get a feel for things that are happening maybe outside of your sphere and your mm -hmm. areas of interest. So have there been any, it could be a marketing campaign or it could be a product or, or something that you've seen over the last year that's made you sit back and think, wow, I really like that. What What is it? And tell us what you liked about it. Um, well, I have to say, I have a great deal of respect and admiration for another blog called um, Good With Money, um, mm -hmm. which has been set up quite recently by um, a journalist called Rebecca O'Connor. And, okay. um, and she herself is, is, is a journalist who, you know, you can really respect because she's, she's just very genuine with you. Um, and I think that she's in a similar mold to me in that she's, you know, uh, gone freelance. She started this blog. It's a bit different. She's really putting herself out there with it. Um, and I really commend that. But I also really like the site because it's talking about ethical finances. It's, to my mind, it's probably the only independent blog that's really doing that in an original and interesting and thought-provoking way. She's using lots of different media to try to get her message across. And um, I just think, you know, power to her because it's a really important subject. It's one that young people will be taking so much more interest in, I think, in years to come. And uh, so there's quite a lot of overlap, really, between her audience and my audience. And I think I could learn a, a great deal from how she's, she's running that site. I think it's brilliant. And what about business books? Well, it have to actually have to be a business book. What's, what's the best business-orientated book you've ever read, Iona? Tell us what it was and what you liked about it. 
Um, well, this is not necessarily a, a business book, but I think it has a great deal of application in the business world. And it's called The Marshmallow Experiment by Walter Mischel. What a fabulous um, title. <laughs> I know, I know. I d I'm sure that I'm telling um, your listeners um, about something they already know. But just in case they don't know, The Marshmallow Experiment was um, conducted at Stanford University by uh, Walter Mischel and his colleagues. And it basically uh, challenged five-year-olds to sit down at a table in a room and it gave the the um the professors who conducted the experiment gave these children a marshmallow and said to them um you can have this now or if you wait 10 minutes you can have another marshmallow and it tested to see what their reactions were to this and then it went back several years later and found out whether these children had grown up to be successful or not and obviously they found a correlation between the children who waited for the marshmallow um, and, and the fact that they grew up to be very successful individuals and the ones who couldn't wait for the marshmallow had problems later on in life. And that was because of deferred gratification. And he identified the whole concept of deferred gratification as being crucial to success in life. And I, I find it really inspiring reading it because he, he talks a lot about how deferred gratification is, is important for everything, our relationships, managing our emotional intelligence, being disciplined, getting on in our careers. It, uh, you would think that it's just a question of, you know, making sure that you do a difficult task early on in the day or, or if you don't feel like doing something, you know, doing it anyway. Those are important lessons. But it was also talking about regulating your emotions. And it's something that I've become really interested in because uh, I've become very concerned with the whole topic of mindfulness mm -hmm. um, and and how our brains work. I've become fascinated with psychology in the course of researching my book. Um, I did a huge amount of research into psychology because it really obviously affects how we manage our finances. Um, and deferred gratification is, is just such an important concept in how our new evolved brains can help master some of the unhelpful emotions that take over sometimes that make us make us think that we you know can't do something or 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 or, or make us want to give into our emotions deferred gratification really allows us to keep that in check and go look i'm not going to let emotions or or my reaction my primal reaction to things um knock me off course i'm going to carry on with my goals and make sure i pursue them even when times are tough and i i just think that's a really really interesting and important concept that we all need to bear in mind all the time and what's the name of your book, Iona? The name of my book is Spare Change, Better Ways to Manage Money. And it's it's beautiful. I, I can't <laughs> take credit for how it looks. My publisher, Hardy Grant, normally does interior design, cookery books, that sort of thing. Um, but So this is a departure for them. But it was illustrated beautifully. Um, and it's got lots of really uh, insightful quotes throughout. And it, and it talks about not just the practical dimensions of managing money, but how we view our relationship with money and how we can change our psychology around money. So I think it's a really interesting and important read. Fantastic. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening to the podcast today who might want to get in touch with you, Iona. So what is the best way to connect? Um, I'm on Twitter, of course. Everyone has to be these days. Mm -hmm. I'm at, um, at Iona Young Money. So um, yes, please do get in touch and drop me drop me a tweet because I, I really love to hear from people. I love to hear from people on the blog as well because, you know, feedback and, and, and 
interaction is everything I, I really love hearing about how my blogs are going down so yeah do get in touch fantastic i'll include a link to that twitter profile and also to your book in the show notes for this episode which you can find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash maf that's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash maf iona it's been fascinating really interesting to talk to you this morning thoroughly enjoyed our chat thanks for coming on the show and let me wish you every success for the future hopefully the next time you're up in Edinburgh, we can maybe grab a coffee. That would be lovely. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF for links to the topics, apps and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. If you are a business person, financial services professional or journalist and have a marketing or finance story to tell, please get in touch. You could be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's just thoughts and opinions, okay? Okay.